Well, good afternoon. I'm Jeremy. I'm um, one of the leaders here, and um, I'm I'm speaking from God's Word in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 because we thought it would be a good idea and appropriate for Cedric to preach this week, but God thought it would be a great idea for him to have gastro, and so that's what happened. And um, and so about 8 a.m. this morning, I got the call up. So you're all going to enjoy the super sub coming off the bench, um, but it's going to be it's going to be great to get into uh, God's Word this afternoon. As we look at our third week on, on stewardship, because I think it's the case that, look, as I mentioned week after week, the reason we speak about money is we don't do it all the time. If this is your first week, we don't speak about money all the time. But Jesus spoke about it a lot. In fact, he spoke about it more than any other topic. Because we follow Jesus, we teach what he taught about, and so we teach on money. Um, and the reason that it's, uh, that it's critical is because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can't separate how you spend from what you love and what you value most of all. And so we wanted to speak on that, but also in this series, Habits of Grace, we want to set up habits that are in line with the gospel. And part of that means stewarding our finances, knowing that they're not ours, that they belong to God, and they're to be distributed according to His kingdom priorities. That a big part for Burwood and Balmain going forward will be the membership here, those who are here in Call City Light Home, stewarding our money well. And one of the biggest calls of the gospel is the call to generosity. I don't think, if you survey the average Joe on the street, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who didn't believe that the world would be better if we were more generous. I think that's a fair, a fair guess. I haven't done the actual survey work, but I, I imagine if you went out there and asked people, do you think the world would be better if more people were generous? You would almost get 100% yes. And so the question then becomes, well, if that's the case... If everybody thinks it would be good if more people were generous, why aren't we? Why isn't that the result? I think there's a reason for it. We used to play, when I taught scripture in high schools, we used to play a game called the sin game, which I know sounds like an absolute barrel of laughs, but it's, it, the kids were sick for it. And the way it worked was, the reason it's called the sin game, we'll, we'll kind of get around to that, but the way it worked was it, you, the prize was M&M's, and as tough as teenagers think they are, they are just greedy for chockies. And so they were, it would just send them crazy. This, they, I nearly had a fight break out at the end of one. They were literally like neck to neck grabbing each other's shirts just over this game. That's how into it they were. Because the way it worked is this. The thing, the thing on the line was M&Ms. And you divide the class up usually into like four teams. And you'd give them a green token and a red token. And you'd say to them, every round, send a delegate up and they're going to reveal what token your team has chosen. Now, if everybody does green, and there's 20 M&Ms in the kitty, you get five each. But if one person brings a red token, they get the whole thing. All the green tokens get nothing. If two people bring a red, the two reds divide it between them. Greens get nothing. If three reds present, they, get, they divide it between them. The green gets nothing. But, and this was the catch, if there's four reds, everybody loses everything from every round. And without fail, it doesn't matter how many times we did it, it doesn't matter how many times you would replay it, every single time, everyone's account would get zeroed because people would get greedy and they'd pull the red tokens and there'd be a big groan that goes through the room and everyone would lose everything. And it didn't matter, we could play it five times in a row. Like they've already seen it play out and they would still do it. Now why? Why is that? I think there's something about that game that is indicative of human nature. We all know if we all just played the green token, it would be better for everyone, and yet the chance to get ahead 
is so irresistible that we can't help doing it, even though it ruins the whole thing. And it's the same with our society. A guy called Robert Kuttner wrote a book about a capitalist society like ours, and he called it Everything for Sale. And he was describing what it's like to live in a culture where you can pay for anything. You can buy everything. Just about everything has a cash value. And he says in this kind of culture, people stop volunteering. We're seeing people disappear from volunteering. And he said for this reason, the person who volunteers time, who helps a stranger, who agrees to work for a modest wage out of commitment to the public good, who desists from littering when no one is looking, begins to feel, not fell, begins to feel like a sucker. Isn't that true? That we know that someone should be generous, and yet if you want to be the person to do it, well, you just feel like a sucker. Why am I missing out on all this stuff? Why am I being generous? Why am I laying down my time or my money while no one else is? Generosity requires a strong motivation. It requires a motivation that's so strong that you would still want to do it even if nobody else is. Where the actual act itself was enjoyable enough that it itself was the reward. And I reckon that's the kind of motivation that is missing in our society. And what we're going to see from 2 Corinthians 8 is that this is exactly the motivation that that we have in Jesus. That actually it is God's generosity towards us that is the motivation for our generosity toward others. And that if you really understand the gospel, the logical and natural follow-on is that you would be generous just as God has been generous to you. And so I'm going to pray that we would see this as we look at God's word today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a lavish an extravagant God who has poured out abundant grace on us, who has loved us with an overflowing love, who has spared not even your own son, but poured out his blood on our behalf for our sin that we might be set free. And Father, we pray that as we look at your word, that you would transform us in our hearts and minds to make us a joyfully generous people for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, the section that we're coming up to in 2 Corinthians has a prequel. In in 1 Corinthians, a guy called Paul, who planted a church in Corinth, which is why it's called Corinthians, he's writing a letter to them in response to a letter that he's received. This church is a complete mess, right? It's a disaster. And so he is now writing to the church about a series of things that they've asked about to answer some of the issues that are going on. And one of the things that's come up is that they're going to take a collection for the church in Jerusalem, a financial contribution for the church in Jerusalem. And at the end of the first Corinthian letter, in chapter 16, we read this, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive... I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. He starts with now concerning, which has come up five times in this letter already. And again, it's referring to something they've already talked about. They've asked him a question about something. And so he says, now concerning your question about X, this is what I have to say. And so he says, now concerning the collection, this is what I have to say. Now, many people have had a debate about what what this collection was for. It's going to the church in Jerusalem, and it's to alleviate poverty there. And many have speculated as to why it is that there were so many poor. Some have kind of indicated that, well, look, as the gospel blew up in Jerusalem, it attracted many people and many who were very needy, and so there was just a need to provide for them. 
Others have indicated that a lot of Jews have this kind of superstition that at the end of their life, the resurrection was going to occur in Jerusalem. And so as they sort of got to old age, they would migrate to the, to the country's capital so that when they died, they might be there for the resurrection. And so maybe there's a lot of retirees there. It's kind of become like a, a Florida of the ancient Near East. And, um, and so they're going to they're gonna find like a, a, they've got a lot of people who are in need. But probably the most plausible is that there was a famine that hit in the 40s. In the actual, not the 1940s, obviously, the, the just 40s, when there was only just the 40s. And in AD 46, there was a drought that hit the eastern Mediterranean hard. And so there was, the people were in need across the board. And so it's likely that the church was struggling under this and that many who were financially well off were now not. And there was a massive need. And so Paul has written to all these other churches saying, hey, would you provide for their need? And so then he gives them a few principles as to why they're to do this. And the first thing he says to them, if you notice there, he says they're to give regularly. He says, look, I'm, I'm coming to Corinth, but just set aside some money every week at the beginning of the week so that I don't have to do a big collection when I get there. He says, do it on the first day of the week. Now, part of this was the Old Testament principle of first fruits, that to give to the Lord, to honor the Lord with your wealth was to give out of your first fruits. It was a rural, you know, agrarian kind of society. And so when your harvest came in, the very first fruits were the ones that they gave out of. And the reason that was significant was when you took in the first fruits of the harvest, you didn't know how the rest of the season was going to go. And so the idea of giving away from the first fruits was the idea that you don't just leave whatever's left over at the end. They were to give to God, to the work of the priests at the temple, to the poor and to the needy, out of the, t- the 10% out of their first fruits straight away. And this was to honor the Lord. It was not leftover giving. And Paul is giving the same principle to the Corinthians. Don't do leftover giving. If you're going to provide for their need, do it out of the first fruits. Set aside something at the beginning of the week. Because leftover giving does not honor a glorious God, does it? Think of it like this. I used to work at a, a pretty, pretty flash establishment called Red Rooster. I realized as I was having a go at it this morning... I actually had Red Rooster yesterday, but I was stuck at the Gold Coast Airport. Isn't, you know, what can you do, right? Um, but uh, the, one, of the, one of the worst things about working at the Rooster back in the day, I don't know if they've changed their ways, but um, I actually got paid under minimum wage. And the reason for that was they were like, it was about $1.40 an hour they trimmed off the top because they were giving me skills that I could monetize elsewhere. The skills I learned were how to microwave or to deep fry things. <laughs> I'm not sure it was worth a buck fifty an hour, but anyway. But the um, the other bonus that they kindly sort of gave was that um, at the end of the day, lucky me, you could take away whatever food was left over. But it was the most munted, hard, <laughs> deep fried, like you know the chips at the bottom of the packet that are unrecognizable as chips. It was like that, and you scrape it into a bucket. And the the worst thing about that was that that stuff, if it didn't go to me, was going to go into the bin. So they were saying, here's a bin, but you're just about here. <laughs> I, I can't say I felt valued as an employee by that perk. That's just leftovers. That's nothing. It's trash. God is saying the principle in the Bible all the way through, from the Old Testament through to Corinthians is, give out of the first fruits. A generous heart gives out of the first fruits, not what's left over, not after all, they've done all the things I want to kind of, you know, there's a few scraps that I'll send over. No, first fruits. But the second principle he says is, as you may prosper. So he says, give, set aside some money as you may prosper. That is, for some people, 
That Old Testament principle of 10% will be too low. They've got plenty of, of dispensable cash to pass around. And for others, that might be just about right. But he's saying, look, it depends on what God has given you. But think and pray through. Think about the principle of first fruits and then give generously. And so those are the principles that he gives them. But I don't think that sounds like a very compelling vision for generosity. Because when it comes time for them to give, Paul goes into the depths of the motivation for generosity. And in 2 Corinthians 8, we read his heart behind the whole thing. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5 says this. It says, it'll come up on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves to the, first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So there's this famine going on in Jerusalem, and there's this church in Macedonia that Paul has planted, and they have no racial or familial connection with them. The only connection they have with them is that they are co-heirs in Jesus, that they are one blood in Christ. And what we see is that there is an outpouring of generosity despite several things that would be a reason not to be generous. And the first one is this. In, in 8.2, it says they were in a severe test of affliction. And that word in the Greek, flipsis, or affliction, is most, most often connected with persecution. Beatings, imprisonments, having your stuff either trashed or stolen. This was severe affliction that they were facing. And we know that Paul, as he planted those churches in that area, was chased out from town to town in fear of his life. And so they are struggling. They're facing severe affliction. But more than that, they had extreme poverty. They were not wealthy for whatever reason. Either it was a very poor area or that or they lost all of this stuff because of the affliction and the persecution that they were facing. But either way, they didn't have much. So they were afflicted, and they were poor. They had every reason not to be generous. I mean, think of how hard it would be in that situation to give away any extra money you had. As you think about your family and their future and the risks that they're facing day in and day out just for following Jesus, let alone the financial hardship that they're facing. And yet, they were generous. And not only that, they were extravagantly generous. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 4-5. He says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. These Christians are not just giving according to what they have, they're giving over and above it. And it's almost as though, it sounds as though Paul and maybe some of the other uh, apostles working with him were saying to them, well, are you sure about this? And they were begging them for the opportunity to make provision for the poor over in Jerusalem. They're doing it voluntarily. They're doing it generously and exuberantly. It's their joy to do it. They're not being dragged through this. They're not having their arms bent. It's unheard of, isn't it? So we've seen so far that their giving is extraordinary because they were poor and they were afflicted. And not only that, but it was exceptional generosity. It was over the top. But what comes next is probably even more extraordinary. It says, For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. When they did this, they didn't do it with gritted teeth 
or just kind of a smirk or a half smile or a quiet sense of self-righteousness, knowing that they're better than other people who, who aren't generous. It was with abundant joy, exuberant joy, a joy that was observable to people around them. It was their delight. I mean, look at how over the top this whole scenario is. Severe affliction, extreme poverty, but abundant joy and a wealth of generosity. I mean, that is extraordinary generosity, isn't it? That is unheard of. And why is all of this happening? Well, Paul tells us this is the reason for it. In 1 Corinthians 8, 7 to 8, he commends them again. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, so he's not compelling the Corinthians either, but to prove the earnest, by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, we get to the center of it. Look at what he says. For you know, 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Can we grab that one up? That next one? There we go. All right. Uh, Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though, he was very, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul is saying, if you get the gospel, if you understand who Jesus is, then this kind of giving, like from the Macedonians, is actually pretty logical. If you understand what really happened at the cross, then generosity is, is really a natural expression of what happened there. See, Paul is not saying that Jesus was a wealthy philanthropist who kind of came and, and you know, gave cash away and made himself poor. What he's saying is that there was a spiritual reality to what happened on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus was spiritually rich. He was innocent, beloved by God, God's only beloved son had done nothing wrong. The only person who has walked the earth in perfect love, never deceived, never manipulated, never abused, he walked in perfect love. He had no debts to pay off spiritually, and yet he came to die and to pour out his blood for us who were spiritually poor, who had a debt that was too expensive for us to pay, who couldn't pay it off, not even with our life. And so he poured out his life that we might be set free to new life, that we might be made righteous by his wealth, we who are poor are made rich. See, God has been lavishly generous to us. That's what Paul says. The reason this church are giving, even though they have every reason not to, is because they've understood the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. They've understood the cross. And it makes sense. When you, when you have been the recipient of extravagant generosity, it leads to more generosity, doesn't it? Generosity begets generosity. And tightness begets tightness. If you've, ever, if you've ever been away on holidays with a, in a share house with people, you'll know this principle. If, you, if you've gone away and it's a bunch of people from you know, different families or friends or whatever it is, and you're sharing a place, the tone for the whole week gets set on the first day. Whoever kind of buys the first stuff, whether it's the first shopping or whatever, will, will set the tone for it. Either they'll come back and get the docket out and itemize it and everyone's got to pay down to the last $1.50 what it is, or they'll just... They'll do shopping and just say, people will say thank you, and they'll say, yeah, next time you get it. And if that happens, what, what tends to happen is the next people do that, and everyone kind of starts outdoing one another in generosity. It's just, it, it sets the tone for it. But if someone is being really miserly and scrounging and scabby and kind of eating other people's food, everyone starts to get more withdrawn and starts to guard their own a little bit more. 
Because generosity begets generosity and tightness begets tightness. The generosity of the gospel leads us to gospel generosity. God's generosity towards us leads us to generosity. As we get to enjoy what he enjoys, that is pouring himself out in generous grace. And that's why when Paul lands all of this in 2 Corinthians 9, he writes about the joy of being generous. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 11, he says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he is decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely, and he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. He says God loves a cheerful giver because that's the person who gets the gospel. That's the person who understands what really happened at the cross. Is as you do that and you experience the generosity of God personally, it leads to an outpouring of generosity. And I can say our experience of being a part of this church, as we kind of reflect back as it's the right time, as we send off our team for bird, as we reflect back on the last six years of church, I've seen generosity poured out time and time again. Whether it's personally for us and our family, when in the first year we were doing exactly what Jacob and Sarah were doing, going out there, I had a part-time job and the other days were uncatered for, we were struggling to pay our 325 a week rent. Can you believe that in Sydney, 325? Anyway, but it was over a chicken shop, so it's, you know, you know much of a muchness. But, um, but just getting random acts of generosity at just the right time when we were in need and needed to pay bills, it was, it was amazing. Being in groups where people who had very little personal connection were making provisions for others in the group, simply out of gospel generosity. People looking after other people's needs anonymously in this church, giving away to their needs and not wanting their name to be known because they want all glory to go to God, and it was just a joy to do it. I mean, this church has given away over the last three years $100,000 to World Mission, to helping out single mums, to refugees, uh, and to justice overseas as well. I mean, that is an incredibly generous church. God's grace has abounded in this church. That is gospel generosity. And Paul says here, this is right. This is a right understanding. He says, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. But he who sows deeply will reap the same. We are called to sow towards the kingdom that we might reap the joy of giving generously. William Wilberforce, a man largely credited with ending the slave trade, wrote this. Talking about his finances, he, was, he, he had established that by careful management, he would be able to give away a full third of his income. But, uh, but he wrote that riches in themselves, uh, so the riches were in themselves acceptable, but from the infirmity of our nature, highly dangerous possessions. And we had to value them chiefly not as instruments of luxury or splendor, but as affording the means of honoring our Heavenly Father and lessening the miseries of mankind. He said, look, stuff is generally as good, but given our natures, we should be very wary of it, knowing that really what we are to do is to further the kingdom, to honor God with our finances and to lessen the miseries of mankind. And he lived it out completely. 
I mean, this Macedonian church's giving was so generous and so legendary that we're still talking about it today, 2,000 years later. And it wasn't because they were extraordinary people. They just got the gospel and lived it out. We were called to be generous. Now, at this point, you may well be feeling bad. There are, there are very few topics that are easier to make people feel bad about than talking about money. And we're talking about money. And you might be thinking, look, well, I've, I've tried things over time. Like, I've, I go through fits and starts. I do kind of like a, like a cataclysmic act of generosity and then just go back to normal patterns or whatever it is. And maybe over time, you're just like, look, in the end, I feel like I just, I almost don't want to give. I just, I like stuff. I like shiny things. And I want more of them. You know, how, how is it that I would be anything like these Macedonians? Well, I'd say this passage is not meant to be a discouragement, but an encouragement. Because if you see what was really in there, what it's saying is that this isn't because the Macedonians were extraordinary people, but because God did an extraordinary work of grace through them. Look at what he said in 9 verse 8. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's God who makes them able to give. Not only that, he says, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. We can't, but He can. You can no more raise yourself from the dead than make yourself generous, and yet God can. And not only that, but if you were here and a follower of Jesus, He has. He has raised you from death to life. That is the claim of the gospel. And if He can do the greater thing, He can most definitely do the lesser thing. When we understand this principle from general life, if you can do a harder thing, you can do an easier thing. Years ago when I was flatting with a friend of mine, when he moved out, he asked a friend of his to help out with him who was a, a male model. And so his whole job was just modeling, which meant that a lot of his week was just spent at the gym. And now, so he was helping moving out. And after the moving day, I asked him, I was like, how did it all go? He's like, oh, it was actually pretty good. Old, old mate was like, he's actually pretty strong. And I think for both of us, it kind of clicked at the same time. I was like, oh, yeah. Like, you kind of think like a model has muscles and they're mostly decorative. But there's like, they're still just muscles, so it would make sense that he could actually lift stuff and move it. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's kind of funny like that. He was a pretty handy friend to have on moving day. And of course, when we kind of sat down and thought about it, of course it makes sense. If all week, I mean, like most of what he did, like, was really working on those sort of things. If you're lifting weights day in and day out, then moving a few things for a friend as they're moving out of their place is no big deal. If you can do the harder thing, you can do the lesser thing. If God can raise us from the dead then he can make us generous. He has done it, and he will do it again. There is reason to be of good hope. And so the call for us is going to be to be generous. Over this year, whether you're heading to Bird, whether you're staying in Balmain, if you're a member here at City Light, it's going to be incumbent upon you to steward your finances for the sake of the kingdom. And one of the ways that we're doing that is, as, uh, as you probably know, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we're collecting for something called the Onward Fund to help us kick on. As we, as we invest in le- developing new leaders, as we invest in helping out our little building here, as we invest in city kids and the next generation, and as we invest in Burwood and the next steps going forward. And so we're going to take a time after this to reflect and pray on these things, and after that they're going to be collected up and they'll be stored uh, properly. Obviously your details will be completely uh, discreet uh, and put away in our, in our lockbox. We'd love for you as you've been praying about these things Think how it is that you might be abounding in generosity for the cause of the kingdom. I'm going to finish with this last word from Charles Spurgeon, the 18th century preacher. He said this, Let us learn then from the analogy of nature the great lesson that to get we must give. 
that to accumulate, we must scatter. That to make ourselves happy, we must make others happy. There is nothing in this world that does not live but by giving, except a covetous, uh, that does not live by giving except a covetous man. And such a man is a piece of grit in the machinery. He is out of gear with the universe. But the cheerful giver is marching to the music of the spheres. He is in order with God's great natural laws, and God therefore loves him since he sees his own work in him. Let's pray that God's grace would abound in our community and generosity. Father God, we thank you that you are able and that you are willing to change hearts and minds. That you have been lavishly generous in Jesus. That you have made more than what was necessary for atoning for our sins. That you poured out the blood of your Son so that we might be set free from sin and death. That we might have new life in you forever. And we, we pray, Father, that this would impact the way that we see the stuff that we have that we might be generous people and experience the joy that you have in pouring out your lavish and extravagant generous love toward us in christ and father we pray all these things that you might be glorified in your people amen take a minute just to think on these things to reflect on that scripture and then gab's going to lead us in what's happening next